Good morning. Anyone else feeling tired today? I don't know if it's just me, but... Um, so, I'll be sharing with you today. Uh, Joey's getting ready to go through the Galatians here in a little bit. So it's like a quarterback getting ready to go through the playoffs. So he's resting his arm. And then I'm the JV quarterback. So, um, uh, I wanted to share with you guys some dad jokes. You guys know what dad jokes are? All right, short. It says, I couldn't figure out why the baseball kept bidding, getting bigger, then it hit me. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the laugh. Um, I know. That one wasn't that good. I'll do better, I promise. Um, I'm on my second guardian angel. My first one quit and is now in therapy. Uh, let's see. Uh, did you hear about the first restaurant to open on the moon? It had great food, but no atmosphere. All right, one, one more. Uh, what do you do if you're attacked by a group of clowns? Go straight for the juggler. I like those. All right. So I'm going to be sharing from Mark 14 today. So I'm going to read this, and I want us to pray. So Mark 14, uh, verses 1 through 11. You can turn there. That's where we'll be today. And I won't have a, a lot of the scriptures up there, but we'll be going back and forth. That's where we're going to kind of go from there. So, it says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And you can help them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached out all the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And they delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you, uh, Jesus, for your power. That was just so demonstrated this morning. And Jesus, I pray that you would show us through your scriptures, what it means to be a success to you. That you would point us back in the things, toward the things that matter and toward the things that will be worth it in the end. Lord, that you would uh, readjust our compasses to that true north toward you and what you desire. Open our eyes, help me to speak as I ought, and help me to uh, follow your spirit this morning. And Lord, I pray that even as I'm speaking, that your presence would be here that you would be speaking to hearts. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in my life, I've had this uh, routine that I've had, this pattern, where I've always wanted to be the best at whatever I did. 
So there's been different things that I've tried to be the best in. Originally, it was uh, football. And so when I was 10, 11, 12, middle school, I tried to be the best. I was on an all-star team quarterback. I was good. But then I quickly realized that I couldn't be the best, you know, or I wouldn't be the best. And so I thought, you know, it's not worth it. I'll just, I won't do that anymore. And then from there, I went from into card magic, card tricks. So everyone think of a card. Now, underneath your seat, you'll see a card. No, I'm just kidding. It's not really a card there. So I went into that, and then I realized I couldn't be David Blaine or David Copperfield. So I thought, plus my name isn't David. So I thought, you know, I can't do that either. And then from there, it went into uh, weightlifting and uh, dieting, exercise, all that kind of stuff. And I quickly realized that that's not going to be worth it either, that I'm not Ronnie Coleman or Jay Cutler or any of those guys that grew up uh, watching. And so it's always been this thing of if I don't think I can be the best or if I don't think it's worth it, then I won't pursue it. And uh, the question that I've been asking myself, and I feel like what's happened to me recently is I feel like these things have started to come up again, if I'm honest with you. Um, In the last couple weeks, I've just been dealing with this pressure that I feel to be the best. And if I feel like I'm not the best, then I feel like, well, Mark, maybe you should try your luck at something else and try to be, you know, try your luck somewhere else and see if you can be the best there. So whatever I am now, whether it's a preacher, pastor, whatever it is, if I can't be the best or if I think I can't be the best, then that temptation is to then think about other things. And so the question that I've been asking myself and kind of reevaluating is what's worth it? What's worth it in my life? And what does it take to be a success in the kingdom of God? Because we all, you know, you have to pour time and energy into becoming the best at anything you do, right? If you're an athlete, you put hours and hours and hours into a game. Or if you're an actor, you put hours and hours into a play. You're putting time. And so I don't want to waste my time if I'm going to be the best at something, if there's something to be successful at. I don't want to pour my time and energy into something that's not going to matter. Because Ephesians 2 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in other words, God has us here for a purpose, that we're not just here by mistake or anything like that, but there's actually a design and a purpose for each one of our lives. And so if God has given me a purpose, if he's given me something to do, then I want to partner with him to see that that happens. And, and so I want to, I want to, the way I think of it is I want to marry my hand to his, that he's doing a work in my life. He's working in my life, but I don't want to just be doing my own thing. I want to partner with him in what he's doing and join him in that work. And I've heard it explained that time is like liquid gold, that this time that we have on earth is like liquid gold, that it's for a a time it's malleable. You can mold it and shape it into what you want, but there does come a time where it becomes set, and then that's the thing that's going to last forever. And that's true for our lives as well, that while we're here on earth that we have time and we have opportunity now to make decisions to, to uh, move that liquid gold. But we want to shape it into something and partner with God into the things that are going to last. And so we have one shot at life. And so I don't want to waste my time and my resources and my energy into something that won't matter. So Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, for those of us who are believers, that judgment isn't between heaven and hell. That judgment is between, did we use the resources that God had given us to um, build upon that foundation that he had provided? In other words, rewards. 
that there will be rewards in heaven. Uh, Francis Chan, I'm sure you, you guys are familiar with him, he uses this analogy of a um, gymnast who their whole life has been practicing the balance beam. And so they pour time and time and time and er energy into that. And then maybe, and then he uses that to compare it with our life, that maybe for us that we're walking on that balance beam, you know, but then stuff happens in life and you start to feel a little shaken, a little worried. And so you just think, you know what, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm just going to, and then he gets down and he lays on the balance beam and he holds it. So I'm just going to play it safe. I'm just going to hold on. You know, I'll pay my 2%. I'll wear a helmet. My kids will all wear helmets. We'll all be fine. We'll be safe. And we play life safe. But then he says, what would it be like if they got off that balance beam and then went before the judge? And that was their performance. And I would say that that's the way that I have found myself living. And I think sometimes that we can tend to live. To, to kind of give some further proof of this, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 it says, for no one can lay any foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So in other words, we all have the same foundation. We all have Christ. He is the foundation that we all share. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, that's talking about the day of judgment, will reveal it, will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work if what that person has built survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even as one who escapes through the flames. So we all receive Jesus by grace through faith, and that's what we all share. That's free. That's a gift. And that's, we all share that foundation. But upon that foundation, we're building something that will last for eternity. Recently, I've been watching this show on Right Now Media. Um, about biblical archaeology. And you see these, this architecture that has lasted for uh, millennia, or yeah, for thousands of years from the Romans and the Greeks and Athens and Rome. Just this architecture has lasted. And you know that it's lasted forever because they've put the best quality, the best stuff to make it last. And so in the same way, I would suggest that that is what our lives are like. That I don't want to put my time and my energy and my resources into that wood, hay, and straw, into that stuff that's not going to last, but I want to partner with the Lord in, in those things that will last. The quality. See, it's about quality. It's about what I build my life with and the quality, not the quantity. So in other words, it's not about busyness, just doing things on my own in my own work, but it's about fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is partnering with what the Lord wants, what He's building, because unless the Lord builds the house, then it's not going to stand. And so in a world, it can be so, become so easy to get distracted. Jesus said it this way. He said, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. To think of the life ahead, to think the things that are going to last, those things. And we need to labor and press on toward those things. And Jesus redefined success. He said it this way, that uh, someone came to him, said, Teacher, what's, what's this whole thing about? Because the Old Testament was 613 in laws and commandments, and I struggled just to keep five right throughout my day. And he says, can you just boil this thing down? What's this thing really all about? And he says, well, it comes down to this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. That is success in Christianity. 
That is success. It's not about anything else, because in any other sphere, you know, you have a, a, a very clear definition of success. And here what the Lord's doing is He's giving us a very clear definition of success. And so if I understand that that's what success is, then all of my time, resources, and energy should be put into that goal, if that makes sense. But we, it's easier said than done. That we live in a world that's so distracting and can pull away from that, that we need to make sure that we are focused and pointed on that one goal and that one ambition. And that's what I hope to do today, is this is something that the Lord's, I mean, been reminding me of. I mean, I, I would have told you I'd known this, but to actually make this my goal and make this my ambition, that this is, is success to the Lord. And so today we're going to see in Mark that there's three groups of people. You have the religious, um, and we can go to that slide. The religious, and then we have an example in between of someone who loves the Lord, with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength, I believe in. She's to be the example that we want to emulate. And then you have the rebellious, and that's Judas at the end. And so starting in, in Mark chapter 14, this is an example of, of those who think that they're on the inside, who think that they're successful, who think that they're walking out the letter of the law and loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they're not. And this is a theme that happens in the Gospel of Mark, that there's those who think that they're on the inside, but in reality, they're on the outside. And there's those who think that they don't deserve it, that they can't be successful, that are on the outside, and Jesus then invites them inside. And so in uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, or the people may riot. And so you can already see that their, their worldview, the thing that they're focused on, is people, that they have a fear of man. That it's, they would have told you maybe that the, the goal, the ambition that God wants is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they're not living that out. In fact, these are the people that uh, want to kill Jesus. The one who perfectly emulated loving God and neighbor comes to them, and they want to kill him. That they don't want him. That they consider themselves insiders when in reality they're on the they're on outside. And so these are the people that Jesus has been having the most conflict with. You would think these are the people that would get along and would say, oh, this is Jesus, right? We, we know the scriptures. Of course, this is him. But they don't recognize him. And so Jesus struggles with them because they think that it's by your own, by your own strength, by your own might, by your own wisdom that you're made successful, that you're, this is success to God. But Jesus says stuff like, woe to you teachers and Pharisees, for you give a tenth of your spices, you focused on the, de the tiniest details, but you've neglected the more weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And what it says is that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, the problem that they had was that they thought that the righteousness of God could be attained on their own. Uh, so an example of this is... And because they thought that it could be contained, uh, attained on their own, that they didn't subject themselves to, to the will of God, which is Jesus coming and dying for them and accepting that free gift. And so, for, as an example, if you were to swim from California to Hawaii, and you thought it could happen, 
right? You thought you could do it. Well, you would do everything in your power to try to make that happen. You would, you know, swim as far, but you're going to die doing that. But if you realize, no, this is too far, I can't make it, then you would then receive the boat that's going to help you get to Hawaii. So in the same way, what the Pharisees were doing is they realized, or they thought, that they could attain the righteousness of, their God, of, of God on their own, that it was reachable, that it was attainable. And because they thought this, they then, when Jesus came saying, hey, you need me, they said, no, we don't. We can do it on our own. And so the, the problem with the religious spirit is pride. Pride. Pride thinking that success is what I make of my life and not what Jesus can do. That defining my own definition of success and, and not what Jesus has to say. And I don't know if you guys can see him or not, but I have this little tiny Pharisee living right here. Can you guys see him? Okay, I must all right, get that checked out. Um, and so I have this little Pharisee that speaks to me every time I, I do something wrong, do something bad. He's always there to tell me everything I've done wrong. Can, does anyone else have this little <laughs> Pharisee living on their shoulder? Um, and so anything, the first thing I do wrong, it's there to tell me everything I've done wrong. Everything I've done wrong. And uh, because what sometimes I think is that there's a Pharisee in each one of us, if we're honest. And we think that more knowledge, more, more, more of what I do is going to make me more successful. When in reality, it's submitting to what God has already done that makes me successful. And so this is the problem that they have with Jesus, is because he gives people second chances. Oh, he, he eats with sinners? He allows women to follow him? Like the story, remember, where they, they say, to stone this woman. He says, okay, he's without sin, throw the first stone. Because the religious spirit, what's it want, what it wants is justice and it wants punishment. And this is something that, you know, I've grown up with in my life and having that little Pharisee on my shoulder, you know, that typically comes in after you become a Christian. Because, but those who are Christians, the rebellious and the right, and the religious rather, are equally in need of the grace of God. Um, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, it should be called the story of the prodigal sons, I think, because there's two sons. There's the one that runs off, and we know about him, wastes his life with sin and whatever, and he would define rebellion. He's the rebellious son. And then you have, but then uh, son comes home, they celebrate, and then there's an older son, and he gets mad. He gets mad at his dad. He says, Dad, I never, I never left you. I've done things right, but you've never killed a fattened calf for me. I never messed up. I never ran off. And then the father responds with, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. So if you're here and you struggle like me with that religious voice, what you need to hear is, son, daughter, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. That both the rebellious and the religious are equally in need of the grace of God. And I can relate um, to these Pharisees in a sense because I, uh, what they demonstrate for us is a hard heart. That Jesus is coming, he's trying to reconcile, he's trying to, but they have a hard heart that doesn't want to receive what he has to say. I grew up in a, uh, a good home with a mother who taught me prayers before I went to bed, 
taught me scriptures, all that kind of stuff. And I got saved when I was 12 years old. And then from about the time of right after that to about 12 to 15, my heart became very hard toward God. I, I was like the Pharisees in a sense where Jesus was coming to me in a sense that people would share the gospel with me and I would resist them. I would make fun of them. I mocked pastors. And look at where I am. <laughs> so it's funny. And, uh, but I, my heart was hard and I didn't want to receive what God had to say to me. But then he was merciful to me. He saved me. And this is the, what the religious need to hear is that you're helpless either way. Because religious thinks I can do it on my own. I can make this happen. But in reality, what it is is, no, you can't. You're helpless. We all, we're all helpless. Romans 5, you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will rarely die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we had it together. Not while we had our little tiny checklist done. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so these are those who would consider success um, being righteous and morally perfect on their own. And they would consider themselves on the inside, but in reality, they're on the outside. And so now I want to look at an example of the woman and her worship and how that demonstrates what success is to the Lord. And, and I think she perfectly, or not perfectly, I think she demonstrated for us an example of what it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you can go to the next slide. The worship or the love that Jesus desires. So in verse 3, it says, While he was at Bethany, reclining at the table of, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now what this says is that the worship or the love uh, the devotion that God desires is, is it's broken. It's broken. And this is the message that the religious need to hear is that your devotion first needs to be broken to Jesus. And this, this is what this woman demonstrates is that she, it's in Bethany. Question is, why is Jesus in Bethany? He's God. He's king. Shouldn't he be in Jerusalem? Well, Bethany was about two miles outside of Jerusalem and it's the place where Jesus felt at home. That he goes into the he goes into Jerusalem, and he's rejected. Bethany was a place where Jesus felt at home, where people weren't coming and were trying to get something from him. The crowds weren't coming and trying to get food from him or trying to get a miracle to happen. But somewhere where he's reclining, he's relaxed. He's among friends. And among this setting, he's in the house of a guy named Simon the leper. Now, I thought about this, and if you know anything about lepers in the Bible, is that they were outcasts. They were those considered on the outside. But it's obvious that Jesus had healed this man because Jesus would have been breaking the Old Testament uh, regulations and laws regarding lepers that they lived in 24-7 quarantine. They had to cry out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, so that you couldn't come near. And it's obvious that Jesus had come near and that he had made him clean. And so and, and I imagine he didn't have a job or the house couldn't have been nice. I mean, he couldn't have been around people. It can't be the nicest place. So why is Jesus there? It's because he's welcomed. I imagine that the roof was leaking. 
The neighbor's cows were making a ton of noise. The upstairs neighbors were having a dance, having Zumba classes upstairs. All this kind of stuff. The mice don't pay rent. You know, all this stuff. It's not perfect. The AC doesn't work. But Jesus comes, and he dwells there, and he stays because he's welcomed. Now, how does that apply to us? It's because we're a temple, that we're now the residing place of God in the spirit, and that we think we need to have our, our everything fixed, that the AC needs to get fixed, the roof needs to get fixed. These things that are broken within us need to get fixed before Jesus can come and dwell with us, but it's not the case at all. That he comes, and sometimes we want him just to fix it. Sometimes I want him just to fix it. I, sometimes I, I don't want to just have a meal. Lord, can't you just come and fix me? Can't you just fix it? And what he says in Revelation 3.20 is, Behold, I stand at the door, and I knock. And if you open to me, I will come into you, and we will share a meal as intimate friends. And that he's sitting at that meal. I imagine water's dripping down on his plate. You know, it's uncomfortable, but he's there because he's welcomed, and because you invited him in. And he's not necessarily looking at the leak or anything. He's not necessarily in a hurry to fix anything. But he's there because you're there. And I, I kind of picture it like um, Sam from the movie Holes. He's like, I can fix that. I can fix that. And as time goes on, but you're not worried about that. You're just worried about having communion, having relationship. And in the process of time, he fixes it. And, and he will. And then in this setting... A woman comes in. And this is, what this speaks of is inconvenience. It's not convenient. She, she could have come in a more convenient time, but she comes right now. She didn't think it was appropriate to come any other time. Her heart was moving her. And she brings an alabaster jar of very costly perfume. That it's expensive and it's pure. That now it's believed that this was a family heirloom. That this was something that was kept within the family. And this really, and they say it was worth a year's wages. Very expensive. Now, what perfume speaks of is perfume is over the top. Perfume isn't necessary. It's extravagant. Now, there's other balms and stuff like that that are medicinal and can be used in that way. But this was extravagant. It was over the top. It wasn't necessary. So, like, if, you know, you shower... And that might be the necessary part. But then to go above that, it's not, necess it's not necessary, but it speaks of extravagance. And it was pure and it was costly. And she, it was, and she broke it and gave it to him because it's all that she had. She didn't pour half of it on someone else. She broke it and gave it to him, all that she had. And it's messy. Worship isn't always the cleanest. Love isn't always the cleanest. And it, like it promises in Psalms that he's near to the brokenhearted. So when we're not religious and trying to pretend that we have everything together, that we're holding all these pieces together, but when we're honest and we're broken and we give what we have, that the Lord can make something of that. So give all that you have to Jesus. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be broken. Uh, number two, it's costly. Worship and love that God desires is costly. Uh, four and five. Some of those present were indignantly saying to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, what you call worship, the world will call waste. 
What you call worship, the world will call waste. And this is the thing that's been wrestling with me, is it's like, God, I'm pouring my time, I'm pouring my energy, I'm pouring my resources into what I think matters to you, but it feels like I'm wasting time. It feels like nothing's coming of this. But Jesus promises what, the, what we call worship, the world will call waste. So why are you wasting time going to church? Why are you wasting time? This is what that voice would say. Why are you wasting time reading the Bible? Why are you wasting time in devotion and all these kind of, why are you wasting time? That's the, what the, the voice of the world is saying. Why are you wasting your time? Time is money. You could be doing something more productive than devoting yourself to Jesus. That's what always, what this voice will say. It's costly. She, she, was, she was rebuked harshly in their presence because she gave this. In 2 Samuel 24, David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord and my God anything that costs me nothing. That worship has to cost something. There's a price of admission. That you ha- it has to cost me something in order for it to be pure and to be holy. And this is the difference uh, in the Bible where it talks about uh, Cain and Abel. Um, actually, I'll just look at it really quick. I got this new Bible. I like it. Uh, I'll just read this really quick. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So in the, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought a, a, an offering of the uh, soil of the... Op- oh my goodness. Okay, <laughs> let me read that again. Uh, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So in the course of time. It just kind of happens. He's just going about life in the course of time. He's doing his thing. And then he thinks, okay, I'll bring an offering. It didn't cost him anything. It, it probably was like uh, the runt. You know what I mean? It wasn't anything uh, costly. But it says of Abel, and Abel also brought an offering, the fat portions from the, some of the firstborn of his flock. So in other words, Abel's offering cost him something. And that's why the Lord received it. And so as we try to give the Lord worship, as we try to give him adoration and what he deserves, there will be that voice. They'll always try to say, why are you wasting your time with Jesus? That you could be doing it in any other thing. And so what we need to do is, uh, is not listen to that voice and give it all to him. In the world, it, it says that uh, this money could have been sold and given to the poor. So the world will always come up for a better use of your time. It'll always come up with a better use of your time. You could be stu- How many of you, when you get ready to pray or something like that, like that thing that was on your checklist like a week ago, you're like, oh, I should do that right now. Does anyone else do that? It's like, where was it 10 minutes ago? When I was watching TV, it wasn't there. When I go to spend time with the Lord, that's that voice. You're wasting your time. Could be doing something else, more productive, more fruitful. And so don't let the voice of the world and of yourself keep you from pursuing the call of first place devotion to Jesus. Number three, it's appropriate. Mark 14, six and seven. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. Jesus defends this woman's worship because he values it. Because it's always appropriate to worship. It's appropriate. What they view as extravagant and over the top, he views as appropriate. It's always appropriate to worship. And he says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So in other words, he's talking about priority. 
that I can do stuff for the poor, I can do those good works, but if he's not involved in it, if he's not the center and the reason of why I'm doing it, then it really is, it, it loses that sweetness. You guys know what I'm talking about? That you go through life and, and work is hard, work is bitter, right? It's the first curse given to Adam is that by the sweat of your brow, you'll produce the soil or you'll produce the uh, fruits from the ground. So work is bitter, it's hard. And it says, uh, so that what this means is that we, everything we do, we do it with the Lord and for the Lord. And what this does is it adds meaning to everything, that everything then becomes worship. So worship isn't just a, a service on Sunday morning or your alone time, but it's actually everything you do. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it all with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. For it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Uh, uh, I think it's Basilea Schlink. Uh, She founded the Evangelical Sisterhood of Mary. She was a nun. And uh, she she made this very practical when she was working in the monastery and stuff. uh, She had these two words that she would say as she was working. And this is how she kept doing everything for the Lord. She would say, for you. For you, Lord. For you. So she'd be cleaning the toilet. For you, Lord. Doing the dishes. For you cleaning for you. And that makes it very practical. So everything we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And I've done work without the Lord, and I've done it with Him, and I can tell you doing it with Him is much sweeter. Um, There's uh, a scripture that I think shows this beautifully in Exodus 15. Just really quick, this is after God had delivered Israel, and and they come out, and it says that Moses... um, yeah, Moses led them from Israel to the Red Sea, and they went to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. That's why it was called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, why, uh, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, what does this mean for us? Is because in the Old Testament, remember, all the Old Testament scriptures speak of Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them is eternal life, but it's these that testify of me. So all of the scriptures, the whole story, it's one unified story leading to Jesus. In the Old Testament, you had types and shadows of Christ. In the Old Testament, one of the types and shadows of Christ, or of the cross, is a piece of wood. And then water typically represents life. So if you think about this story, that they come to bitter waters, and God tells them, take a piece of wood, throw it into the midst of it, and it'll make the water sweet to drink. So our lives can be bitter apart from Christ and everything we do. It can be bitter, hard. But when you throw Jesus and you throw the work of the cross into the midst of what we're doing, it makes everything sweeter. Walking with his presence makes everything sweeter. Or it's not just I'm doing it for a paycheck, but I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing it for him. So everything we do, we do it as unto the Lord. And number four, it's wise. It's wise. 14, verse 8. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And so Jesus starts by saying she did what she could. That the Lord isn't requiring something of you that you don't have. Did what you could. I can't, this is why I can't compare myself to anyone else and what they're doing, because maybe they don't have what I have. Maybe they don't have the gifts and talents and abilities that I do, but God has given me things. 
And if I do what I can with them, then that is success to him. She did what she could. You're asking why this waste? She did what she could. And that's what God's saying, is that he, he'll never give you something greater than what you can handle. It says that he, he will not lead us into temptation if, if uh, that be, he will be with us and, uh, um, gosh, Scott, what was that scripture? Right, yeah, I blanked for a second. My goodness. And then when they went into the promised land, he says, I'm going to drive out the, the nations before you little by little, little by little, that I won't give you anything more than you can handle. So he won't give us anything. And uh, what I love about this scripture also is that she did it to prepare me for my burial. That maybe she didn't understand that, but Jesus finds a purpose for it. It's like a, a kid, you know, when you draw a painting or uh, some kind of artwork for your parent, and they find some place to put it on the fridge. That's what this is like. It's like, no, there's a place for it. That she did it for my burial. Maybe she didn't understand, understand that but she did this for my burial. And this is the wisdom of God because Christ, while that voice is calling out saying, why this waste? Why are you wasting your time? It's actually wise. Worship is wise because it, it, Jesus is called the wisdom of God, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom is not more knowledge that I need to attain. It's a person. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when I worship, when I put my heart in him, on him, when I set my devotion to him, when I attach myself, then I'm attached to wisdom itself. And he says, she prepared me for my burial. And so this, this perfume was something very expensive, uh, but it was also sticky in a sense. It was made of nard. It came from a root in the Himalayas. Very expensive. But you can imagine, this is two days before Jesus is getting ready for the Passover. And again, that shows the wisdom and the sovereignty of God that he has this whole plan in place that Jesus, this Passover lamb, is going to be sacrificed on Passover. And he said, she did this to prepare for my burial. She didn't understand what she was doing, but Jesus did. And so you can think, she poured this, and in first century Judea, they were not bathing every day like we do. They, they didn't, that wasn't a thing. And even if they did, I mean, it's not as, I guess, as thorough as we are today. So you can imagine, this is only two days. He poured it on his head, all over him, on his clothes, everything. So this is the scent that Jesus carries with him as he goes to the cross. He's carrying the cross on his back, and the fragrance that he smells is of this woman's worship. Worship matters to Jesus. It sticks with him. It's not something he forgets. It sticks with him. It matters to him. He values it, and it's wise. That this is the fragrance he smells while they're betraying him. Worship sticks with him. It matters to him, and he remembers it. So give what you can to Jesus, and he'll make use of it, and he'll remember it. And that leads to our last point with this woman, is that it's remembered. Uh, 14.9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout all the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, of course, there's some things that you remember better than others. Uh, have you guys ever seen Inside Out? Where they have the core memories? I got some core memories. The embarrassing ones that keep me up at 2 a.m. that I'm thinking about. Got some of those. 
but there's those, those memories that we carry with us that kind of shape who we are. Uh, Antonio Portia said, one lives in hopes of becoming a memory. And uh, one of these core memories for me is um, we lived with my, my uh, grandparents for a time. And uh, my grandpa, who passed away last January, January 21, um, I loved him so much. He meant so much to me. Um, I remember we were having dinner at his place one, uh, at their house. Grandma was cooking steaks, and the sun was setting. Summer day, they have a beautiful house up on a hill on 36. Reds game's on. And uh, I'm sitting there across the table from my grandpa. And, of course, through this time, I just... I believe that I was the most insecure kid in the world. I really do. Um, always been self-conscious, always been fearful. And I remember he, I don't know what prompted him, but he looked across the table and said, Mark, you can be anything that you want to be. Mark, you can be anything that you want to be. And no one had ever, at least I remember, no other words had stuck with me like that. And I've carried those with me. That, that memory has influenced me. Because it's been said, you don't remember the way, what people said to you, like, you're probably not going to remember this lesson after I'm done. I hope you do. You don't remember the words that people say all the time, but you remember how they made you feel. You remember love. And I would suggest that it's the same with the Lord, that he remembers love. Love is the thing that's going to matter in the end. It says in Hebrews 6, uh, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the labor you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. It's those things. It's love that's going to last forever. That's going to have an eternal impact. Those are the, that's, the, that's the silver, gold, and precious stones that we want to be using to build our eternal, our eternal home. Because in Matthew 25, perfect example of this. This is at the throne, at the great white throne judgment. It says that Jesus will separate two people, the goats and the sheep. He'll say to the goats, those who represent, who don't know him, he'll say, uh, go away into judgment, for I was with you. I was naked, and you never clothed me. I was in prison and sick, and you didn't visit me. I did all these things, and you, you, didn't, you weren't there for me. And they'll say, Lord, when, we, when, were we, when did we see you sick and in prison and do all these things? And he says, truly I tell you, if you didn't do it to one of the least of my brethren, you didn't do it unto me. And then he'll turn to the goats, or sorry, the sheep, those who are right, yeah, no. no. And he'll say to those who will be in, received in the kingdom that I was with you. I was uh, naked and you clothed me. And he says, but you did it. And they'll say, Lord, when did we do that? He says, whatever you've done to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. In other words, acts of love will be remembered. Those are the things that we should be striving toward. And that's what the Lord remembers. First Corinthians 13. I know you all know it, but we need to hear it. If we speak in the tongue of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Give all that I possess and give to the poor. Give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then in verse 13, now three of these remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So it not only matters what I do, so talking about judgment, talking about those things that are going to matter, is it, it not only matters what we do, but it matters why we do it. It matters why we do it. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says that God will judge the thoughts and the motives of each person's heart. So think, of about, think about it in terms of like a, a cart 
or a horse in the cart. That the horses represent love, and love always has to be in the front. It always has to be the following. It always, sorry, it always has to be leading. But anything else has to be following. So in the same way, love always has to be the motivation. It always has to be the thing that's in the lead. Because if it's not, it's not going to go anywhere. Love has to be the motive. And so to finish, like, so in the beginning of this section, it talked about a warning to the religious. And then we've seen an example of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it finishes uh, with a warning to the rebellious, which is Judas. In verses 10 and 11. Okay. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them, and they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So think of these as like two guardrails uh, or two, uh, two ditches on either side of the road that we want to be here. But this story, what it's demonstrated for us is you want to be careful of over here and you want to be careful of over here. And if you're careful of these things, then you're going to stay on the path that God wants. So here, the problem is that I believe in our day and age, the, the day that we're living in, that this is the greatest threat to obeying love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is it's our hearts growing cold. It's so hard. I, I'm just speaking for, it's, it's hard to, to, because before when you had something going on, you didn't have to be aware of what was happening around the world, or, and it wasn't on a screen in front of you all the time, right? You were just in your immediate circle, and it's like, okay, well, that happened today, or that didn't happen, and it wasn't a big deal, but now you have everything, an overload of information, and what it can do is it can cause our hearts to grow cold. Matthew 24, because of the increase of wickedness, seeing wickedness, all that kind of stuff, uh, the love of most will grow cold. And this isn't something that happens overnight, that this is a slow drift from the course. Um, and if we aren't careful, we can be drifted away by the powerful undercurrent of the world that wants to keep us and sway us from the love of God, from obeying first, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up is The Day After Tomorrow. Has anyone seen that movie? It's not particularly great. I just like it for some reason. It's a catastrophe movie. I like catastrophe movies. Um, but there's a scene in it where uh, the polar shifts. Uh, yeah, there's a polar shift, and it creates a new ice age. And they're in the New York library, and they're trying to keep warm to stay alive, of course. And, uh, and one of the librarians who's surviving with them, uh, you know, they're burning all these books. And she's like, you can't burn those books. Those are valuable. And he says, what, do you want to freeze to death? So, of course, she lets him burn the books. So in the same way is that the room temperature of the world is freezing, it's cold, and that we need to tend to the fire of our hearts to keep warm. And to do that, we're going to have to sacrifice some things. We have to sacrifice time, energy, resources, whatever it is. We, we might have to sacrifice some of those things to keep that fire going, to keep warm, and to keep our affection for Jesus alive. James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this is what happened with Judas, is that Judas drifted. It says that he betrayed uh, Jesus with a kiss. And what that communicates to me is that he wanted intimacy without obedience. 
is that he wanted the connection. He wanted the goosebumps. He wanted the feeling of peace in his heart. But right before this, Jesus says, hey, let's make a covenant. And then right when he says that, Jesus heads out. But then he comes back, and he betrays him with a kiss, speaking of intimacy, speaking of relationship. But he wants Jesus for the good, but he doesn't want Jesus for the hard things that follow. And this is the problem with following one foot in Jesus and one foot in the world, is you can't have it both. You can't have it both ways. We all need to be either all in on one side or on the other. And Judas was trying to live a foot in both worlds, in both worlds, to have connection with Jesus, but not have the, the hardships that come with following him. So Mary loved her Lord, and Mary is the woman who's mentioned here, even though it doesn't mention her name. Mary loved her Lord publicly and openly, and Judas betrayed him privately and secretly. Mary loved her Lord expensively, more than a year's wages. Judas sold his Lord cheaply for a price of a slave. Mary was criticized for her devotion. They scolded her, it says. But Judas, Judas uh, was praised for his deceit, and they were glad to take his money. And at first, it seemed like Judas had gotten the better deal, but we know better. Mary is accused of wasting money, but Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition, or literally the son of waste in John 17. Judas accused Mary of wasting her money, but Judas himself wasted his life. So Judas pursued a definition of success that this present world offers, which is money, monetary value, whatever. And he thought he, thought he, he couldn't live it all for Jesus. And therefore, what he did wasn't success at all because it wasn't connected to him. It wasn't connected to love. So in other words, if we're going to finish, and Rob, you can come up and if you could play a little bit. In the last slide, so if you remember anything today, remember, uh, sorry, go back to worship, it's worth it. Just remember that worship is worth it. So if you, if you leave with anything today, remember that. Worship is worth it, and it's always worth it. And you'll never be wasting time, energy, and resources as long as they're aimed at glorifying Jesus in love and deed. You'll never be wasting time. It's never a waste to him. And, and it's in those things that the Lord remembers, those things that will last forever, and those things that are successful. And so, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? Is Jesus your foundation? Have you started with him? That's where we all need to start. But then on that foundation, are you building with wood, hay, and straw? Are you trying to do it on your own? Are you just trying to do your own thing, hoping that this is something God will make work? Or are you building with gold, silver, precious stones, those, that work that will endure to the end, that will stand through the fires of judgment? What are you building on? And so, because Jesus did go to the cross, and he did pay the price for sin, so that that foundation could be laid, that you could start a brand new life in him, so that your sins could be wiped away, and you could start with that brand new foundation. And if he is your foundation, then what are you building on your life of faith? Are you building with wood, hay, straw, things that won't endure forever? Or have you become rebellious or religious against Jesus? And maybe God's calling you to do something that you haven't been doing. That course that he set for you, but you've just been confused and haven't been pursuing it. 
And so for all these things, I think there's a simple answer. Uh, I remember we had a teacher in high school who literally would give us the answers before tests. And if it was uh, an answer we wanted to circle, the answer was all the above. So I'm going to give you an all the above. And that's the last slide, Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. And I think this perfectly illustrates for us what it means. So choose life. So, Jesus, so Moses has just laid out for Israel blessing and curse. Choose life or choose death. He's, he's giving them an exhortation. Choose life. And how do they choose life? By these things. By loving the Lord your God. By obeying his voice and holding close to him. This is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Lord has set a course for your life. He's given you that destination, that, that promise of what your life is. And he promises that if you love him, if you obey his voice, and you stay closely to him, that he'll get you to where you need to go. And so... You may not know the calling on your life and where he's taking you, but if you love him, obey his voice and hold close to him, he'll get you to where you need to go and bring you safely to himself. And when we do this, it causes us to live with peace in our hearts because we live before an audience of one. And it's only him that we're trying to please. So I'm not comparing myself to anyone anymore. I'm walking out those things that God has called me to little by little, loving the Lord, being faithful in the small things, loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when I do this, it causes me, it makes me successful in His eyes, because it's not success in anything else, but loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, because worship is worth it. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much what you've done. I pray for every heart here today, Lord, that if we have veered off course, if we've gone off from loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you would correct us and put us back on that course toward the things that matter. That if we haven't started a life, a foundation with you, that we make that decision. And that, Lord, you would help us, God. You would give us the wisdom to build into things that will last. God, we don't want to build wood, hay, and straw. We don't want to do our own thing. But we want to partner with you in what you're doing. God, give us the wisdom to do that. That love would take the lead in everything. Because, Lord, you remember love. You remember the works done in love. So I thank you for that. Help us, Jesus, to love you with all our heart, to obey your voice, and to stay closely to you because this is our life and the length of our days. Thank you, Lord. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.